Welcome, welcome, welcome to everybody's favorite cinema podcast, Looking California Film, Minnesota. My name is Michael McCaffrey. I'm the Looking California portion of the program. I am a writer and acting coach in sunny Southern California, and I'm joined by the Feel of Minnesota portion of the program. His name is Barry Anderson. Barry, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I'm a director uh, based here in the lovely, soon-to-be great white north here in Minnesota. Um as uh, as we want, we travel to do projects and uh, back back here for uh, post fall when everything's ugly as it's preparing for winter. But uh, now we get down to the the fun fun job of catching up on movies and figuring out which are the ones worthy to either praise or which ones are worthy to complain about. And we are here today to talk about the I don't know is it popular? Is it controversial? Is it just you know whatever? But the new Netflix movie called Blonde. Yes, we are. And we should say we apologies for uh, the paucity of, of podcasts. Barry has been very busy. He's a very in-demand director. And uh, so we, we've not had much time to get these done. But we are here today to talk about Blonde, which is a Netflix film. Netflix produced it and it is streaming on Netflix. It debuted um, on Netflix on September 28th. It is directed by Andrew Dominic, and it's based on the book Blonde by Joyce Carol Oates. It stars Anna de Armas, Adrian Brody, Bobby Cannavale, Julianne Nicholson. It's got a budget of $22 million, and it is the story of Marilyn Monroe. We all know Marilyn. We all love Marilyn. Um, it's a sort of fictional biopic, uh, sort of uh, plays fast and loose with the facts of her life. Anna de, Ar de Armas plays uh, Marilyn. And it touches upon all sorts of uh, sort of interesting, I guess, people. Joe DiMaggio, Arthur Miller, JFK, all of the sort of great loves of Marilyn's life, which didn't seem to be so great or contain much love. Um, the movie has gotten a lot of attention, I guess is a way to put it. Because it is the first Netflix film to be rated NC-17, which, you know, is, is sort of the modern day equivalent of X, I guess, as it used to be. And so, Barry, a lot of people have talked about this movie. We're going to talk about it. I want to hear you talk about it. What did you think of Blonde? Boy, well, I, I have to say I was not excited to see this movie. Um, I didn't think the previews you know, made it look very interesting. And if any of you are avid listeners to our podcast, this is a, a statement you have heard many times from me in the past, but modern day biopics are definitely some of the worst types of movies being made because genuine, generally speaking, they come across as just Pollyanna and the person that we're doing the movie on is perfect and everything, their life was perfect and they were perfectly formed and didn't run into problems and they rose to the heights they did without any obstacles. Now, with that said, this movie was not following that particular trend. This was a popular figure that everybody knows about, and they decided to dig into the dark side. And I don't know enough about the real life of Miss Norma Jean, a.k.a. Marilyn Monroe, to know which parts were fabricated, which parts were based in reality. Um, I, do, I do know that I don't think she had a particularly, you know, stress-free, happy, no-nonsense sort of life. And so, you know, 
in today's times, I'm I don't love to just wallow in movies that make me feel terrible and you know make me feel like oh I wish that person didn't have a hard life. So I I kind of came into it uh, a little bit trepidatious, and I know that we reviewed a recent movie of Miss Anna Day Arms, um, her movie I can't remember the name of it with uh, Mr. Deep Water. Uh, Deep water, deep water Ben Affleck, which was another what I would call erotic thriller. And this, <laughs> this that was crime, either erotic, it, yeah, it was not thriller. erotic nor thriller. And so this movie kind of seemingly she wants to kind of put herself in that kind of erotic thriller, you know, tantalizing, you know, sort of thing. And this movie was not erotic nor a thriller nor anything else. So I'm not understanding. Anna de Armas as the modern day Marilyn Monroe, Sophia Loren, you know, Anne Margaret sort of, uh, you know, um, what's her name from fr uh, France? I can't think of her name all of a sudden. Um, Bridget Bardot. Yeah, Bridget Bardot. Um, I don't think she's filling any of those shoes. Um, and so this movie, the whole thing was just curious. I haven't read the book. But just the way they laid it out, what they chose to focus on, not exactly sure the the major points and if they stayed coherent throughout. But a major problem that this movie had, and we talked about this, on, I think, two podcasts ago when we did uh, Elvis. Mm -hmm. The danger is if you choose to show a world famous talent bigger than life in a movie and have someone else kind of do it. The big thing is, are they going to overshadow what you are putting on film now with someone who doesn't have that? And I have to say the scenes with Anna de Armas playing Marilyn Monroe gave you like a giant spotlight magnifying glass of exactly what made Marilyn amazing and why it can't be recreated. And so every time they dip back in that pool, I was like, oh, this is a no-win situation. So even if Anna de Armas gave the performance of a lifetime, we call it the X factor. There's certain people that just light up and have an energy about them that can't be taught, can't be trained. It just, it is what it is. And Marilyn had that spilling out all over the place. And Anna de Armas does not. And I think if you're going to walk into a movie like this, you know, take away the whole tantalizing bit and all that sort of stuff. That's at the heart of this. Like, what are you capturing? And I just, I just felt like right away, they kind of committed film suicide that they were never going to be able to, to live up to it. And I think going back to um, Elvis, both, both, I think both of us thought that the actor Austin was doing a good job, the best he could. And like, you know, the number okay. sequences, it was like, it was a valiant effort. And, yeah. if, and if you wouldn't have put in the real Elvis, you could have almost like, but once they put in the real performance of Elvis, it just unraveled the rest of the movie. And they did a good job of this movie. I don't think they put Marilyn in the movie. I think they kind of did the Forrest Gump thing where they kind of plopped Anna de Armas in. But the problem was, is her movies are so iconic and you know that chemistry and kind of that lightning that in the scene, by dropping it in there, you, it's gone. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's why that's why I like watching Marilyn Monroe. And so, yeah, I, I'll, I'll be quiet for a minute. I'm, I'm curious to see what you think. And there's more stuff I can dig into. But uh, definitely, 
definitely they were playing with fire and I think they got burned big time on this one. Yeah. You know, this movie, uh, I had not seen previews for it uh, intentionally. I I try not to watch previews or commercials and things like that. Sometimes it's unavoidable, but I try not to. Um, And so I hadn't seen anything about it. And when I watched it, it, it's, I found myself just perplexed as the movie went along. And the movie's very long. It's almost three hours long. And I came up with a thesis, which I'd be interested to hear what you think about. This movie, from the get-go, throws you right into a really dark, dark story. I mean, the opening is basically Marilyn Monroe as a young girl um dealing with her crazy mother you know and and her mother's a lunatic and mentally ill and then she's you know put in a uh, orphanage all these things and it's just it's relentless and it's like this the character of marilyn monroe which i'll get into more in a little bit but just the, the character is basically living in a nightmare and there's no moment of reprieve from it no for for marilyn or for the viewer like you it's just like one dark odyssey and i i started thinking to myself i can't remember the exact moment um i think it may have been during one of the many abortion scenes uh, I started thinking to myself, this is a horror movie. That's what this is. This is the horror movie of like a, a person trapped in their own nightmare. And of course, you have to sort of accept certain premises to, to make this thesis worth work, you know, like the, the premise that fame is, you know, this this demon, you know, Hollywood is this death cult sort of thing. But the movie is just abysmal and it's really really difficult to watch not because it has any sort of profound insightful things to say about the tragedy of Marilyn Monroe's life quite the opposite it doesn't really have anything of worth to say and we can get into the specifics of of the structure of the film and and the creative choices which I, I actually really want to talk to you about um as that's sort of your your wheelhouse but I found exactly the same thing as you. I kept thinking about the movie Elvis, which we talked about, that, you know, Elvis and Marilyn Monroe sort of hit around the same time in the 50s. Same with Marlon Brando. And all three of these people hit because they were this embodiment of this incandescent sexual energy. And the reason that was so impressive at the time is that it was during the 1950s where all this sexual energy was repressed and so here these these almost greek gods are of these 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 beautiful people who are just radiating sexuality and anna de armas is is a beautiful woman I, i i can't imagine anybody would think differently she's no marilyn monroe she doesn't embody that sort of 
sexual prowess. She doesn't emanate that sort of allure to her. And the biggest issue, and I, I don't think she's a bad actress, by the way. I, I, and I think she does her very best in this movie. She's game for it. She obviously dove head first into this and was like, I'm willing to do anything. But her casting is really problematic for the main reason that, and I don't understand this, she speaks with a Cuban accent throughout the entire film. It's utterly bizarre. And Marilyn Monroe has a very distinct voice, right? That we all know. And having somebody who speaks with an accent that is not uh, in line with that instantly takes you out of the illusion like literally sentence by sentence and so Anna Diarmas speaks with this Cuban accent which you know it manifests in sort of how she pronounces words the cadence of her speech and you know these are these are unconscious things that viewers may or may not notice um, but it just takes you out of it immediately and so what you're left with is this movie that you're watching somebody pretend to be somebody else, not very well because of that. And it's just this relentlessly depressing crucifixion, right? That's really what this movie is. There's no character arc. No one grows. No one sort of comes to realize anything. Even the element of tragedy for Marilyn, which is why she's becomes such an icon, you know, that, that she died sort of at the height of her powers and, and as a result of sort of external influences on her that, that were just sucking the life out of her. Even that tragic sense is taken away because there's no, nothing contrary to it. There was no alternative for her. There was just, I was born into shit, I'm going to live in shit, and I'm going to die in shit. And that's it. And boy, that just seems really vacuous to me. An incredibly vapid way to tell the story of this character, this person that is fascinating. I mean, you could argue she's the most fascinating woman of the 20th century. I mean... And, and we're reduced to just, oh, yeah, her life was miserable. That was it. Oof, what a, man, guys suck, right? All right, moving on. I, I don't know. that To me, it, it just, it, the film, I, I wrote in my review that the best you could say about it was that it was uh, an exceedingly ambitious art house film. That, that's yeah. if you're being, it, that's if you're being incredibly <laughs> generous because, as ambitious as it is, I think it fails on every level of its ambition. Everything it tries to do, it ultimately fails at for a variety of reasons, which I, I think we can get into. But the main reason is, is just, look, you can have Anna de Armas play Marilyn Monroe. I mean, she can do that, but you can't have her play Marilyn Monroe and not be all in in terms of, like, she can't have her accent. You can't have it. It's just, it's, it's insane to try and pull that off and then to do it for three hours and have the movie that you're sort of, you're giving people. It's like, she's, and I agree with you totally about 
I think it's a major mistake to have to try and recreate those iconic film moments in this because you can more believe somebody embodying Marilyn Monroe off stage and things like that because we don't we weren't there for that you right. know so you can be like oh okay but when you're seeing the film and you're like diamonds are a girl's best friend and you're like oh, why why what is going on this looks like somebody's imitating Madonna's video from the 80s or whatever you know it's like it so I I think that was a, an unwise choice um similar to what they did with Elvis and showing the real Elvis because it just it, it shows this is not this person does not have the charisma and the magnetism the dynamism that obviously Monroe had but you don't need those things if you're just playing her off screen she can be less candescent you know um so yeah th those are my initial thoughts of of the film the this is a problem like if i was hired to to make this movie i would do infinitely more research than i did for this podcast trying to understand <laughs> i would i would hope so Bear. <laughs> so you know i don't know what is credible data on like you know her process of you know moving from Norma Jean to creating Marilyn Monroe and like there there it she didn't just show up fully formed and it just worked and I don't know who right. who had influence in her life that was positive and or who was manipulating you know kind of her through that process but they found found and struck gold it would be I mean just from a story for, perspective is if she figured out oh everyone's only looking at me as a sex object and i can't i can't make norma jean work but she creates this sex object that then she can play but then you know she gains you know she gains his fame but then because marilyn monroe overshadows norma jean then it creates this tragedy in her life but she doesn't want to like like there's all kinds of things that could be an interesting way to tell the story the way that they told it a, I felt took away from whatever tragedy she had in her life from the standpoint that you're like, man, literally did every single person she run across just tried to destroy her at every level. And maybe it did. Maybe that is the, but then it's like, I didn't feel like they leaned into the dark side enough. They tried to leave the light stuff. And, you know, I, I try to think of other famous, you know, characters that they've turned in. So going back to even Robert Downey Jr. and Chaplin, you know, watching Chaplin come from like this kid in vaudeville to create this character to become a movie star, but yet, you know, obviously was had a, a warped, demented mind that wanted to prey on younger women and showing the juxtaposition of bringing joy to the hundreds of millions of people, but yet, you know, wanted to try to find underage girls to to befriend and and bring home. You're you're seeing like a dichotomy between, you know it's 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 it makes it more interesting and or tragic that you're like hey if you just stop doing that you know this becomes more but they don't and so then it drags down the good stuff and the bad you know and there's like this internal struggle and i for all the pain they showed you know anna de armas in during this film what kept any part of her enjoying playing marilyn monroe where you know the money what did it buy like 
there didn't seem to be any benefit to Marilyn on or off screen in this movie, which then you're like, well, was she suicidal from the time she was 10? And never like, like I just couldn't put a beat on when I watch movies with like are you know based in true life stories and you know a war movie or whatnot, you can see the struggle of like, I want to give up, but I need to fight for something. And this movie was just like, whoa, you just need you need one or two people to come in your life and help because this is I mean, you are you're lost, but yet it wasn't tragic enough to really just be that train wreck that you can't look away from. You know, then they would try to tantalize you. And I'm like, well, this tantalizing isn't working because it just feels gross and wrong and sad. And like, the, I didn't I didn't understand what they were trying to say with the whole thing. Like, you know, it just it was a very bizarre. It's just bizarre. It was just bizarre. And, you know, Anna de Armas, I didn't really care for much in um, Knives Out. I didn't care for Deep Water. I don't think she's bad, but. I think a her body type is interesting casting because obviously doesn't she's much more of a thin stick figure than you know Marilyn being more curvy and stuff and it's not always an apples to apples but there's just a I mean when you watch Marilyn and I think I can't remember I don't think it was from uh some like it hot there was one scene that they didn't show from one of Marilyn's movies might have been a seven-year itch where they didn't show the movie but they showed Anna de Armas playing Marilyn and it was the yeah. only time there was like there was a brief moment of magic and like there like that's the closest you're going to get to Marilyn. and there was something that came alive and it was for maybe 10 seconds and then they cut away and i was like whoa how did the editor how did the director not watch that and go okay we're capturing something there how do we get more of that in and so i just found that most of it was just this passive watching where i didn't really care and it's like i don't know if which stuff of this is real versus what's, you know, someone kind of writing. And so I don't know if I should care or be outraged or if like I get outraged that I'm like, Oh, that didn't really happen that way. So now I'm changing her story. And I felt like I knew less of Marilyn at the end of the movie than more. And I know that all biop biop biopic pictures are in fact somewhat fictionalized. So I know anytime I watch a biopic, it's not, Hey, this is a gospel of what this person's life was like, but I still think there's some that you're like, Oh, okay they really did a good job understanding this person. This is their take, but it's a lot of it's rooted in, and I did some Googling and it's like, Oh, accusations of this in this new book, which is what's based on the movie. It's like, okay, well that's one person. So did they uncover something or is this like a sensational writer that wrote a book that got notoriety because they could put Marilyn in it. So I just felt at the end, I'm like, I don't know. I didn't feel like I could trust anything. I wasn't engaged. I didn't like the fact that it was so dark without, really any context and so just at the end of the day i was like man i just i'm not i'm not enjoying this process it felt like a like a seven hour movie you know you see things like what's his name um uh tree of life um the director uh terrence malick yeah so when terrence malick makes a movie and it it wanders or it's thoughtful you could sit there and go like holy crap like i you know it can be uncomfortably long it can be this but there's some there's like a, another layer this movie had no other layer like they would try to do stuff and it was just it felt empty the whole movie to me the best i can describe is it felt empty and as much as i love Marilyn, and as much as you know i did some reading afterwards i love some like it hot 
And I had no idea at that point in her career that she was renowned for being unbelievably difficult and horrific to work with. And the fact that Billy Wilder had worked with her before, but said he never wanted to, but then chose her because he knew that it would make the movie better, but it almost killed him and almost killed the production. You're like, wow, what makes her, I mean, she's so good in that movie to realize that it was that bad off. You're like, there, there's your story. Show like, what did it lead up to making her that sort of like, almost like a bipolar in personal life to the, the image that she created. It's almost like by the time she perfected her image, the image was forever immortalized. But at that point it had completely consumed and eaten Norma Jean, the person. And that's what led to her demise. It's almost like a modern day telling of the picture of Dorian Gray in, I mean, that's fascinating. And I don't feel like any of that was in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you that like the idea that you could make a film about her, about, and I wrote about this and this is what's interesting about her. It's interesting about Elvis. It's like the archetype that they, uh, you could say they embody or that embodies them that like this sexual being it's like Clark Kent and Superman you know there's Norma Jean and then there's Marilyn Monroe and that sort of uh, the the switch between the two and and you know that's an interesting story the story of just fully formed Marilyn Monroe from basically the age of 10 or whatever on you know, and then just going through the sort of turmoil of her life. She got, just to give listeners an indication. So there are a bunch of relationships that she's in in the movie. Interestingly or not, um, not all of them are proven to be real uh, in, in real life, factual. There's one, the first relationship, she's in a relationship a, a, a thruple or th three people with the son of Charlie Chaplin, the aforementioned Charlie Chaplin and Ed, Edgar G. Robinson. And, and you're like, oh, okay, this is weird. And it's this weird sort of, um, they're in like a relationship there and Hollywood knows about it and, and is uncomfortable with it. And there's, they're, it's this weird polyamorous thing where like they're going to have a family and stuff. And then that goes away. And then there's Joe DiMaggio and, and Arthur Miller and JFK. And if you'll notice all of these people are famous or famous adjacent in terms of Chaplin and, and Robinson's kid. So that's something that you're like, Oh, okay. I guess fame is sort of, this thing that's literally fucking her, you know, like d destroying her and just sapping the life out of her. But there's no sort of coherence to it. And even the film's perceived politics, you know, sort of cultural politics, which, you know, I, I understand like the target audience for this movie is women, you know, sort of, Hollywood-esque women to you you best describe as maybe um you know liberal women and so you make a movie about like the patriarchy and uh, you know men abusing women and taking advantage of this woman and ultimately killing her 
But then throughout the movie, there's there are these abortion scenes, which are actually maybe the best done scenes in the film. They're bizarre, but they're like a horror movie version of it. But they're like totally pro-life, <laughs> you know? And so it's like, I, I don't understand how this movie can be so, at so cross purposes with itself and not understand its audience that if you're showing this this movie of abusive men in Hollywood, which, you know, it makes sense for the current time. But then you you run through it, this this really viscerally uncomfortable storyline of these abortions and you know that that have overt pro-life notions to them whatever your politics are one way or the other you're going to be uncomfortable with either of those things right and so it's just like i I don't understand what you're doing as a director and look andrew dominic is the director he's he's a very stylish director um the movie I think most people probably know from is uh, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, which is uh, quite good. I actually really enjoyed that. Movie. That that explains the biggest question I had in this movie. Yeah, you know what my biggest question is going to be. Uh, I know. So when the movie started, it was a Plan B production. Yeah, which is my man crush, the man who can do no wrong, Brad Pitt. Yeah. Brad Pitt's a producer on this. Yeah. At the end of the movie, I'm like, how the heck did Brad Pitt produce this movie? Like, oh, yeah. he got like a pretty good sense of like what is a solid movie. Yeah. And he worked with them on the Just James movie. And Killing Them Softly, which is so, another Dominic film that Brad Pitt starred in. So the, it's, um, it's more the friendship than it is the material. And then that makes more sense to me. Copy. Yeah. See? Yeah, no, yeah. I'm glad I have this podcast because Google would have probably (laughs) told me that, and I just didn't look it up. So I'm glad that we're here today. So here's here's a brief glimpse of Andrew Dominic's uh, filmography. His first film is Chopper, which is I think 2000 or 2001, um, with Eric Bana stars in it. And uh, I really love the movie. It's a small movie. It's like a dark, you know, sort of. It's a true story of this Australian sort of lunatic crime guy. Um, well worth seeing. It's a good movie. Assassination of Jesse James stars Brad Pitt. Um, Casey Affleck got nominated for Best Actor, I think, in it, or Best Supporting Actor. Actor yep. uh, solid movie. You know, not for everybody, but a solid movie. I never saw Killing Softly. Um, and then there's this. And he he directed a few episodes of Mindhunter, um, the, the Netflix show. So, you know... He, you understand he, he's got a distinct style to him. Now, my question to you is, as a filmmaker, as somebody who has to make decisions about all of this, the minutiae that, you know, most normal people don't ever have to think about, this movie does a couple things stylistically, namely it's in black and white, I'd say the majority of the time, but it does go from black and white to color and then back again. And it also changes aspect ratios throughout. And I couldn't figure out any coherent theme as to those changes back and forth. And I'm not saying that there wasn't one. I'm saying I couldn't figure it out. And I'm wondering if you could, 
And if you could explain to me and, and people listening, both of them, um, what that's about, <laughs> like what, what and how, and what that entails, because obviously this is not like just something, you know, that they do, you're doing it intentionally, but I couldn't find any coherence to that intentionality. Yeah, I didn't either, but there was a lot I was trying to kind of digest. I'd have to go back and watch it again, which I don't really want to do. I tend to think that this might have fallen under the category that I will admit that I have found myself in. You go in with this grand plan to do something. It doesn't quite work. And so when you're in post, how do we make this a little bit more this? How do we make this a little bit more that? So it is possible that a lot of that was done. If you kept a standard aspect ratio, it wasn't in black and white. It was just a color movie there it might drag too much you know it might be a way that you're like okay you know i have the footage i have but how do i kind of you know swash it around and when you get into that mode all it is is you're judging it based off of like what's you know have i gone too long here before i change something up okay we need to change something up now and the performance is what it is so now let's go ahead and switch aspect ratios let's you know this scene let's go back to black and white so i would not be surprised if that in fact, was the methodology behind it kind of a fix it and post sort of thing if it's playing uh-huh. long, dry and boring. So and also it's a way to make it seem more artsy. <laughs> because yeah. But the best ones are not. The best of the best, you know, you could tell that there was a plan and which is why I'm willing to admit it that, you know, my projects to date have not been on the pantheon of the greatest films or filmmakers of all time. And so a lot of times you are learning and you're experimenting and you're like, that didn't work. And how do I do it? So I, I would, I would hypothesize that that's more likely the case than a coherent plan. And the other thing is, even if you did have a coherent plan so often, and even on great movies, you will rearrange things in the edit that was not intended. So if there was a method then suddenly it doesn't make sense in the edit, but you just know that it works for the edit. And so you leave it. That would be the other hypothesis that I would say that, you know, because they chose to change something or cut something out or rearrange parts that then it didn't follow the structure that they had originally intended. And it's just a nature of to make a better movie. Sometimes you got to leave some errors in there that uh, people who want who, people like us who analyze it go, I don't understand. You're like, well, because we had to cut that scene because we had a fight with that actor and they were dropping out of SAG and that got yanked because they got in a lawsuit with the person over here and so now this doesn't make sense so we just changed it black and white and everyone else is like ooh well it's funny because I, obviously you and I have worked together and I've worked on other projects and uh, whenever I do a scene generally it's terrible but then I'll turn to the director and I'll say you know what in post why don't you make this black and white and change the aspect ratio? I think it'll work out fine. Uh, and they never do for some reason. They just leave me on the cutting room floor. That, and if they would have, you would be like right next to Tom Cruise in the pantheon of the great <laughs> actors of the 20th and 21st century. I would. It's, if only they would change everything I did. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> like, oh, damn you, Hollywood. Damn you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you did it to me again. Um yeah, and you know, like, because what I was trying to figure out as, as I'm watching it, the black and white and the aspect ratio, 
I'm like, okay, is is one is black and white like her? Is this Norma Jean, right? As we were yep. talking about before, or is this like you know the uh, a dreamish sequence? Is that you know the uh, and just back and forth and boy, I could not and which is by the way what I do most of the times when I watch movies is try and figure out these cues. I just couldn't figure it out for the life of me. So I, I tend to think that you're right, that they, it, maybe there was an intention heading into it that they lost grip of. Um, but boy, oh boy, it's it's really visually baffling and, and narratively incoherent. It's first, you know, putting a movie together, you're like, what, what are we doing, guys? Um, another question for you is the nc-17 rating i'm wondering if you think it deserved that rating and if not why and if so why well it's weird because i grew up in an era where like x or nc-17 was a big thing and you had you know as hbo and showtime came into houses part of the main reason that those shows or those stations became popular is it was justified by everybody like, Oh, I'll get the new Batman movie. And then they would sit down watching the basically porno movies after a certain time that were on those channels. And that was the main content being created for the pay movie channels was basically skin films. And so the, the like sorting that out, now you've gotten to a point where they don't make erotic thrillers anymore. And you don't have movies that are like, you know, like a basic instinct or a eight and a half weeks or any of those kind of, you know, touch touchstone films based, you know, kind of on this, you know, torrid sex that has now moved almost exclusively into the porn realm. And since porn now isn't you're not going down to a store buying or renting a DVD or a subscription to the mail, people have it in access that that content just basically has left Hollywood. Like if you think about it, there are, there are not a lot of like adult sex-based films made anymore. Right. And so if we're looking at it as a slice of time, this breaks the mold where you have a lot of nudity. Um, you didn't have a lot of graphic sex, but in comparison to what's out there, this now seems on an extreme level. I think I saw similar stuff to this in PG movies in the eighties. So do I think it's NC 17? No, but again, is this a product of the time versus the product of what it is that we're watching? And I think part having gone through the stupid rating system and knowing how crazy messed up that whole thing is like, you can basically get the rating you want. And a lot of times I think they use it as another marketing tool and right. I tend to think that they wanted a NC-17 rating. And so they just asked for it. And they're like, sure, you want less audience? And they're like, it doesn't matter. It's on Netflix. Everyone's going to click on it anyway. So I I don't think if you're looking at a truly, here's categories of what makes movies certain ratings, I don't think it should be an NC-17. I think it was partly a choice and partly the fact that we don't have movies like this made. And so it people don't know what to do with it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I don't, you know, there's 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 uh, bare breasts in it. Um, in the day, bears her bosom. I saw in PG movies, 
that I was because right. my parents didn't want me watching. And I'd be like watching something and then boobs would come on the screen. I was like, wait, what was oh. that? Uh, but you're like, but it's PG. <laughs> I don't understand how this works. And now it's like you see a boob and it's like, well, NC-17. You're like, OK, well, now I really don't understand what's happening. It is true. And uh, so a couple of things I agree with you totally. I think it's a marketing thing. It's a way to generate sort of, you know, clicks and, and articles about it. And, you know, if you're just scrolling through the morass of things in on Netflix, um, oh, there's that, some titillation or whatever, no pun intended. Um, but I also think you're right about the context because I, thinking about the other day on this film, Deep Water, whatever it's, I can't even remember the name of that movie. I think it is. Um, the, the Adrian Lyne film. You know, Adrian Lyne hadn't made a movie in 20 years and you go back through his filmography in the late 90s through the 80s and there's, you know, nine and a half weeks and and uh, 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 Fatal Attraction and all these things, really steamy movies. And those are considerably more steamy <laughs> than uh, than this. And, you know, those were those movies were rated R. Um so I think you're right. I think people just are not used to this sort of thing, which is sort of funny in, in a culture that's so, I mean, awash in pornography and even, you know, mainstream television is, is sexualized to a great extent. The idea that movies are somehow, and they are, they're, they're sort of prudish in a lot of ways. It's, it's sort of shocking, you know, considering uh, the, what the rest of the culture is. But maybe it's it's just that medium. I don't know. But I think you're right, and I think it's weird, and I think it's a marketing thing. Um, well, I think, you know, I, think what pe- I think what people have forgotten that just blasting people with images of naked people, sex, porn, whatever, you know, whatever form it's getting put, that is more prevalent now than it's ever been. Yeah. But I don't think there's ever really talk or growth in terms of like what it does to people or how people think about it or how people are treating. It's much more of a a fantasy than it is like, okay, there are people here. And I think I think just because it's more prevalent doesn't mean we've gotten any more sophisticated and or healthy in the way that we think about ourselves or think about others or our fantasies. And so, I think it's weird because I'm trying to think of some of the movies that I maybe saw when I was younger that had a certain appeal to them, but it felt, I felt like some of those films felt more adult in terms of like, they were more like real people kind of coming together and being attracted. And I feel like now it feels more fake for a better word. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how to say it. The, it, and I think, I think it's that mistaken that just by exposing people to stuff doesn't mean there's wisdom or there's like a, a, a health or a, a comfortability with it. I think just blasting people with stuff sometimes. So when you said that like, Oh, it's a wash everywhere, but yeah, it seems prudish. It's like, because we're not, we're not washing people in things that necessarily make connection or sexual relations better. It's just different. I mean, I remember, you know, I had friends a few years younger than me that I can't, I think it was the movie. uh, Was it wild things? 
was uh, I think it was Wild yeah. And I I didn't I didn't see the movie, but I think I was somewhere where I saw a still grab of one of the the naked women. I don't know if it was I don't remember which actress it was, and I saw it and I was like, something looks different. And it was the first time that I was seeing, like you know, kind of the plastic surgery side of what nudity had become. And in the eighties, when I grew up seeing the stuff in movies, they were like real people. And you realize that there was a generation that basically stopped seeing real bodies. So then when they got to the age where they started becoming sexual, they would see real women's bodies and they'd be like, well, these don't look right. And so just by plastering things to people doesn't mean that it fixes underlying problems unless they're addressed. And that's part of the reason that I think it's so fascinating that especially with men being visually trainable, it's like I just sometimes I'm like, we should stop trying to like put these weird body figures out there because men will find a lot of things potentially like it's sexually appealing. So let's make it better for men and women to show them more normal bodies that everybody can get excited about. So I, I think that's a much beefier topic to understand. But whenever whenever anybody tells me, well, it's everywhere. I'm like, no, porn's everywhere. But that's definitely not like healthy normal like relationship you know pro anything that's just a fantasy of you know what people kind of escape to and so it's 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 complicated because in america sex is a a, a bizarre topic but i also think that you know i would love for movies like this to come out and be able to kind of like stir some conversations on how we could make things better so that people don't objectify Marilyn Monroe and use and abuse her whole life so she commits suicide that would I would prefer that not to be an avenue for the next talent but that wasn't the story that was being told it was kind of like she was doomed from the beginning and there was no hope and she had no power to do anything and nobody wanted to help her and I'm like boy that doesn't leave a lot to (laughs) be excited about as a woman like where were the woman friends helping out where was the good man to come into her life and like you know did she make a choice that like there was help and she went away from it and like, Hey, there are help look for those types of people. But again, I don't know what the ultimate meaning or, or, or lesson or anything that they wanted to learn from this movie. It just kind of wanted to be, they wanted to do the film and just let it lie. And, you know, it's the sort of thing I find funny. I think Anne Armas was like upset because when the movie came out, like images were on the internet of her nude scenes. And she's like, I can't believe people would do that. I'm like, no offense, but does anybody think that anybody that ends up nude anywhere won't immediately be shared to every site on the, like, that is exactly what happens. I mean, all the time. And it's just like funny that people are surprised by this. And I'm like, uh, no, that's definitely not, that shouldn't be a surprise to you. It shouldn't be done. Like we can make that argument, but don't pretend like it's a surprise that if you're going to make a erotic thriller, that there's a certain number of people that are going to come to go look at just the nude scenes. You hope if you make a movie like that, that you can attract people to come that want to see nudity, but then you made a good movie and they're like, Oh man, I actually like this movie. And you kind of be like, yeah, you know, expand your horizon a little bit beyond just naked people. Um, But I don't think they did that. No, no, I refuse to do that. (laughs) Um. So we know how you approach movies. Got it. Got it. Check, check. So you make a couple interesting points. I think we should talk about is that, Part of the flaw of the film, which is very flawed, and again, it's almost three hours long. So, like, it, it, as relentless as it is, it's it's a slog. But you're right. There's no 
alternative for her. So you were talking about how like, oh, where's where's her female friend or a man who comes along who like sort of presents a way out, you know, a, a way out of this death march and th this nightmare. And it's funny because there is a character in in the public imagination. I don't know if it's real life. I don't know what her relationship with Joe DiMaggio was in real life. The movie portrays it very negatively. I don't know if that's accurate or not. Um, but that that's that character in sort of the Marilyn myth, Joe DiMaggio was her escape hatch. Was Joe is a normal dude. He's retired at this point And like, he just wants a family and Marilyn can like get out of this. He wants her to be more chaste on her, in her representation to be less sexualized. But that's not how the movie portrays it. He's just another vampire. He's abusive to her. Um, so there's no alternative. And there are no friends who are like, hey, you know, we can have this relationship or this love, you know. I guess the Arthur Miller thing is that. I, I'm not really sure. But, you know, when, when you look at the way the film sort of, comes to comes to its conclusion um in terms of her relationships uh there's the whole letter at the end of the movie that is you know spoiler alerts for anybody who wants to watch this thing god help you by the way but just tune out for the next five minutes um there's a there's she keeps getting letters from someone who she, who alleges to be her father throughout the movie and she has not known her father throughout her life. And at the end of the movie, it turns out that um, I think Charlie Chaplin's son has died after, you know, years apart from Marilyn. And she comes to find out that he was the one writing the letters, that her father had never reached out to her. And it destroys her. And she you know, ends up dying. She basically kills herself. Um, I understand how it's the sort of paint-by-numbers approach that A leads to B leads to C leads to D. But I kept thinking to myself, like, how much more interesting would it be if Marilyn doesn't learn that information and dies, and yet the audience knows it? So that she's, her tragedy is amplified at that point. Dying thinking that there's this man out there who is her father, who cares about her, who she never gets to meet, as opposed to being, basically what the movie is, and I guess this is the point I'm making about this ending, the movie feels like abuse porn because it's so relentlessly cruel to this woman. And at the end, you could actually still have it'd be you know horrendously tragic but at least have her die under the illusion that someone cared for her right and then you find out it's a lie and the audience is left carrying that burden not the character right which is a very different dynamic so it's that's what it feels like to me and and so the movie feels really it's shocking for such an art house director and art house film for a movie to be so 
base and so really thoughtless and dumb. That's the thing that really struck me. It's, it's just like an exercise in cruelty, this whole movie. And it's just like the JFK character, like, what are we doing? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, what is this? Like, Joe DiMaggio, like every sort of American man that there is, it's just like, oh, he's a rapist. He's an abuser. He's a monster. It's, and then it's moving on. It, it, very baffling movie. Very, very frustrating movie. Um, anyway, here, here in my review, I wrote about this, but these are the movies I thought about when I watched this. And then there's a little tangent on it. Did you ever see that movie Jackie by Pablo Lorraine about uh, Jackie Kennedy? No. Was that with uh, what's her face? Uh, yeah, Natalie Port. Yep. No, I did yeah. not. So I, I saw that movie. It, 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 people were really split on it. I actually quite liked it. He also did that movie Spencer. Um, oh, with, uh, yeah, about uh, Princess Di. Uh, yeah, with uh, Kristen, Kristen Stewart. Stewart. I did and, that one, yes. Yeah, I did not like that movie at all. It's just sort of a mess. But this movie sort of felt like trying to do those movies, but with Marilyn Monroe, and doesn't do it nearly as well. Even though I didn't like Spencer, I'm like, well, Spencer's considerably better than this movie. Yes. And the other movie I thought about is a movie which I actually watched pretty recently is uh, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. I've and never seen it. I need to watch that one. It's it's really, it's a masterful film. And it's about the same sort of issues. It's about Hollywood and fame and how it's this sort of, fame is really this sort of lying devil, you know? And it's, it's Hollywood's a, this demonic place where like women are exploited and, and have the life drained out of them. It's a tremendous movie. And... I thought to myself, you know, David Lynch made this bizarre, insane Lynchian movie about this topic so much better than this. And then I watched, I, I, I read uh, Andrew Dominic's Wikipedia page. And I'll actually go to it right now. Um, it says his influences. So in 2012, Sight and Sound poll of the greatest films of all time, Andrew Dominic chose for his favorite films of all time Apocalypse Now, Badlands, Barry Lyndon, Blue Velvet, Marnie, Mulholland Drive, right? There we go. Raging Bull, Sunset Boulevard, another one. So he's intrigued by that same topic, but he's just not, he was not able to put together a coherent story and a, a coherent and worthy and satisfying film about it. Whereas obviously Sunset Boulevard and Mulholland Drive and even Blue Velvet in a sense um, sort of touches on these things. It's just interesting to, to think about that, to think about the themes he wants to touch upon. And yet for whatever reason, whether it was that he was forced or, or chose to adapt from a book or, you know, he could have just, come up with this story himself right you don't need to adapt the book yeah um you know but he, he just he fails in every step of the creative process and of the production was a failure every single one <laughs> it's quite astonishing you know for a film like this 
um, you know, from casting Anna de Armas to uh, how they shot it, to the script, to the performances, into all of it, man. Just yikes. Yikes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, any final thoughts on, uh, on Blonde, Barry? I mean, if we're talking about whether or not we're recommending it, uh, I would I would say no. Um, I don't I don't think there's much to gain either cinematically or insight into Maryland. I mean, honestly, if you want to watch this movie, go watch any of the handful of classic films that she's known for, and you know your time is so much better. Like if you haven't seen some like it hot, if you haven't seen the Seven Year Itch, if you haven't seen like you know Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, like. I mean, even her most unknown movies are probably go, better. Than this uh, I I tell people this a lot. Go watch Asphalt Jungle. Yeah, it's her first sort of breakout role. It's a very small role, and I remember the first time I was watching that, and then she comes on screen. She's lying on a couch, and I didn't even know she was in the movie. And you just sit up because you see Marilyn Monroe being born as Marilyn Monroe and you're like wow she just explodes off the screen and and it's just she th there's a real particularly in that movie but obviously in the in the bigger films there's her her power is uh her magnetism is palpable it 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 really is it's it's astonishing to see so i recommend people do that cuz i agree with you it's it's just like, yikes, man. This movie just misses the boat on everything. But in terms of recommending it, I wouldn't recommend it to normal people. I wouldn't recommend it to cinephiles. But I think about in terms of like Elvis, the Baz Luhrmann movie we talked about, I would recommend that to normal people. Yeah. Because right? yeah. you're just like, yeah, you know what? It's just sort of a mainstream pop entertainment thing. Just do that. This thing is just like, I can't imagine people making it more than 20 minutes 30 minutes through this uh, i mean it's again it's almost three hours long god damn oh yeah yeah oh dear all right barry so i have we have we finished with blonde yeah i think so all right good we've we've abused blonde and now we'll throw it into the hollywood cutter just like everybody does Marilyn. poor Marilyn, who's so great she's the greatest all right, everybody. Uh, this has been Looking California Field, Minnesota. We've been talking about Blonde. We appreciate you tuning in. Barry and I don't like this movie. <laughs> we watched it, so you don't have to. Uh, we'll see you next time at the movies.